What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville Season 2. Today, my guest is five-time Grammy Award winning, an absolute legend, one of the most recorded guitar players in history, and and on a personal note, one of my best friends and, and a guy that I love and respect dearly, your friend and mine, Mr. Steve Lukather. Steve Lukather, thank you very much for being here. Jeez, what an intro, Joe. Gee, I can't live up to any of that. You know that. <laughs> I, I, I know, but... I, you know, but thank you very much. You're very, very... And you are one of my best, and I adore you. Big fan. Always have been. And, and thank you again for you know coming to my rescue when I get picked on for some stupid shit I say that's taken out of context and clickbait, you know. I just we were just talking a minute ago. I just wanted to clear the air and apologize to all the guitar players out there that read this clickbait that I think that tablature sucks or that you know, guitar hero is a waste of time or whatever. I don't really mean that, man. Come on. I mean, I come from the old school. I was studying to be a studio musician. They don't hand out tablature at the studio. I wish I could play had all that stuff when I was a kid and we were lifting up the needles the hard way, you know? So I apologize to the guitar community and thank you for sticking up for me. And because I did see that on Instagram where you, everybody roasted me and you said, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> and you get through this yourself. So you know what this is about, you know, here, here's the problem. And, and we, 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 we live, we live, we live in a, in a world where, publications have have transitioned from you know we used to go to the airports you know you got a 10-hour flight to amsterdam buy right. all the car magazines right. and, and people would say stuff and you just then you'd leave it in the the seat back in front of you and and somebody else would read it what how they sell media now is they sell it by click so they'll cherry pick something in five you may have said 5,000 words to to an interview, you know, uh, to an interviewer. I talked and then, too much. And then, and then they, they click a, a half a sentence out of context, and then that's the way they get people to click on it on Twitter oh, and Instagram. This happened and, to me with Van Halen because everybody knows that Ed and I were friends, really right. good friends for 40-some-odd years, way beyond guitar buddies, you know? I mean, right. the, you know, nobody's going to argue that Ed was one of the greatest rock and roll guitar players ever, if not the, you know, rock and roll guitar player. He changed the whole thing. And he was one of my dear friends on top of it. So if I say something about Ed, it becomes, somebody goes, well, what, do you, what can you tell me about Eddie? And this is before his sad passing. I'd say, I, I don't, I have nothing to say, man. I'm just not my point. You know, I don't know anything. So the next thing you go, Steve Lukather tells all about Van Halen. And in the article, I said, I don't know anything. Right. You know what I mean? Because if those guys are dear friends and, you know, I don't I have no right to speak about their personal life. You know what I mean? Any more than anybody has to do about to you. Like, well, you, you know, know, you're one of the most funny people that I know. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and always telling a joke. And I, I try to do the same. I, I, the same. I have like a really dry sense of humor, and it's like right. what you don't get when when you read the clickbait is the inflection in the voice. Right, it's like, it's never, exactly. You know, making a joke or whatever. And what I've it, tried. It's to fun hear, to be famous, isn't it? Oh, it's, <laughs> but but think about it. Like what I was trying to think. I'm like, well, in the in the age of AI. Maybe you can invent a robot to do interviews for you that just speaks in a very monotone voice and everything's curated and nothing's edgy and it's like right. It, well, look at comedians; they can't even tell jokes anymore because somebody's going to be offended by everything you say and do. So that's tragic that we can't make fun of the 
things that are horrible in our lives or, or you know, like that's what Richard Pryor and George Carlin and people like that all in the family blazing saddles. They they took the stereotypes and crushed them with humor. We right. can't do that now. No, it's 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 you know then it's everybody's offended. Oh well, you know if you say this, oh you can't say that because so and so will be offended or so. What do you work with? You know, you know what it is. I, I find it, I find it the the pile you know, like it's it's just best not to listen to the pylon because it really is a loud speaking minority of people. You know, because we were just talking before we started, like, you know, you have three billion streams on 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 total records. You've sold you yeah, sold yeah. million yeah. records when when you actually, you know, you've won five Grammys. There's there's a lot of love for Steve Lukather and oh, Toto. That, that, that's, I, I'm not making it seem like that you know, everybody hates me. I'm not like that at all. But, you know, I get I'm a sensitive guy. All artists are. Right. It's a very myopic view to take one guy that goes after you when 50 people have said nice things. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it bothers you a little bit, like, because it's not just like, I don't like the music or whatever. That's fine. Listen, your choice. I don't like everything either. Right. But to come after me personally and, like, really harshly and, like, fuck you and all this, like, dude, you've never yeah. met me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get it. You don't like me. You really spent all this time to let me know that. Okay. Fine. Do you feel better now? You know, I try to keep my, you know, I just try to keep track of what's going on in the in the guitar community. It's a curiosity. It's like the button says, "Don't touch the red button." It's like, well, what happens if I do? Right. Well, now we know what happens when you do. And I and I find that like I'll watch an artist who's a good player, not my cup of tea, but a good player. Right. But 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 is universally loved, and there's no debate. And right. they'll post something, and it's just just. Praise after praise after praise. And I go, and I always say to myself, I kind of chuckle. And I said, man, if I posted something at that level, I would be roasted. Right. Absolutely. Oh, oh. Roasted. well, this is what just happened to me. Right. It's like so, I've been getting roasted for 44 years, man. You know what I mean? From day one, they hated my band and me. And I just, it's like I've chased me around. I'm just like, I can't escape it. I'm like, I make fun of it. Whatever. I laugh at the jokes. I love being a family guy character at South Park. Thought that was the coolest thing ever. Make fun of me all the fuck you want. But you don't have to come after me like harshly, like personally, you know, like I did something to your family or something, you know? Exactly. And, and by the way, in all of those years, how many people have actually come up to you? who actually have met you and have said something like that to your face. Zero? Well, there's a couple German guys. Your sound is weak and pointless. You know, <laughs> I go, thanks, man. Appreciate that. I think that's a compliment in Germany. Yeah, but, you know, like, there's always a couple, of, you, know, you know, some people that think they have to be painfully honest to be, uh, oh, I'm on your level, or I'm an edgy guy or whatever. And I'm like, I go, look, if you don't like it, I'm, I'm sorry you were sitting in front of the bass bins and the sound was shit or something, you know what I mean? You know, I apologize, yeah. You know, I apologize for that. What can I do, you know? So one of the things that, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, I've been, like, a fan since I've been, since I've been playing. And wow. we, we were talking about the, 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 like, how you got typecast a little bit in the 80s about having the Bradshaw rig. And oh, stuff. man. It's un but, and poor Bob, Bob, who has nothing to do with this. Bob makes the gear. He doesn't make you turn it all on or, does, or misuse the gear. It was new. It's like a new toy. What happens if I turn this button on? What happens if this happens? This is a brand new technology back in the 80s. But I am the poster boy for over-processed everything. 
And I don't do that anymore. I use very little stuff. But if I do, it, you know, it's just to make a point, like a, a Univibe or a Wawa. Or, you know, I like a little delay, but I use much less of it. It's like if, yeah. if I look at it like drinking, it's like being able to sip a shot and enjoy it all night long. Or like I used to be and like have 100 shots until I'm fucking on the floor. You know what I mean? It's the same concept without without the pain. You know what I mean? I did something once, and then it became a thing. Like Landau, me, Dan Huff, and whatever that whole era of guitar players, you know, we were the guys that, like, you know, they would hire to get that. Landau had all this stuff before I did. Buzzy right. Featon was the first guy I ever saw have a Bradshaw rig, and I was thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Finally, something... You know, but, you know, to blame me or Bob because I happen to turn on too much shit or a producer goes, I want that sound. And they hired me for that. And then I get bagged on for the rest of my life. It's like saying, you know, I hate fuzz tones and, and I hate Keith Richards because he used it on, on satisfaction. Right. It's like that was 1965, man. You know what I mean? It's uh, not that we all love that song, but I just use that as a crazy example. You know what so I mean? that's, that's, a, that's a good point, because, you know, not only were you a you a, a, a rock star with your band Toto, but you're also in town here in Los Angeles doing sessions and whether it be Quincy Jones or whoever, yeah. they're going, hey, Luke, I need give something. Me, give me that sound or give me yeah, that give thing. Me something, give me something weird and then you would turn it all on. But you'd had, you had to show up with the toolkit. People would ask you if you had it. Right. You got, you got the branch up thing and all this. And I said, yeah, I still I was one of the first guys, you know, top three anyway. You know, and, and I said, you know, I give them what they want. But I mean, when I'm playing my, my for myself, I, I I didn't turn it all on at the same time. I mean, there was a couple albums in the mid '80s that it was used. Sure, guilty, hang me, okay, <laughs> like as if I you know took your kids at the mall or something like that. You know what I mean? Big deal. It's it, you know, I'm sorry for that. That was a, it's the same thing as the mullet and the clothes and the MTV videos that we spent millions of dollars on that no one ever saw. Where we were dressed up like transvestites and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was like, give me a break, man. I didn't know I had to be an actor, too. I was start st trying to study the freaking guitar, you know? But it was easy. I mean, but the thing is, what, what, it's easy to kind of like, go, oh, cherry pick a few instances where that sound was used. But they won't reference Boss Skaggs, Down to the Left, Middleman, where it was basically <laughs> you and Les Paul in a deluxe reverb that, uh, that uh, Rivera modded. Yeah, and, and, like, I, and I double tracked a couple things because that was a thing, too. Right. You know, I could do it. I could put up parts and then double it right away. And I just had the, a brain for this. I was built to be a studio guy because I was trained and I got to be around Jay Graydon and Lee Rittenauer and Carlton and all the giants. And I was able to see how they Jay Graydon mentored me with the gear. He was the first guy to get the rolling double chorus thing. Like, and that was like, whoa, back in the 70s. You know what I mean? And then everybody had to have that. But it was a drag because... We were still playing on 24 tracks, so if the producer was going to give you two tracks, that was a big deal. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, we're going to give you two tracks out of the 24? You better play some shit. You know what I mean? Right. And Jay did. And he and Jay taught me so much about the etiquette and the whole theme parks and who's an unspoken. You should have him on the show, man. I, there's a guy that will, you know, he's the only guy that did rec does those records and TV film. Because right. he can read so well. He used to be a sax player. So that's, you know, his reading chops were horn player level. But he's one of the most gifted cats there is. And he gets no love. Dean Parks. Dean you know? Parks, you know, I mean, again, like, 
you know, they, they talk, you know, like in Nashville, there's the Brent Masons and, and Brent, and, who's a brilliant, brilliant. No, undoubtedly one of the more gifted. There's a new cat in, uh, or not new, but uh, it was new to me, Tom Hemby, who's yeah. an incredible guitar player from Nashville, who, who just mind blowingly, you know, finger pick every style. He's got it all. He's one of the studio guys there that really knocked me out. Sweetheart of a cat, too, man. Check him out. But then there's guys like Greg Cock. And, you know, they're just so mind-numbingly good. And there's a lot of really great young players coming up that are just, wow. You know what I mean? And they're so far ahead. Like, you know, like I see 23-year-olds. I'm like, how did you learn all that stuff? And it's like, well, access to the information. You know, it's like back when I started, I had I had my dad's record player. And I would ruin his records by just sliding them back, trying to figure it out. Or then I got a tape deck that you could hit rewind and play at the same time and kind of hear where it was going and then you just you just rewind and rewind oh, wow. and rewind. Yeah, that's pretty cool and you know that's how you learned and and you would interpret you know maybe you didn't get it note for note but you would interpret kind of where they were coming from you know and what you i mean learn from that and you go wow that's really okay i see now you know especially like as it got more difficult the things you were trying to learn right you know what i mean like the first thing i learned that everyone went wow was the guitar solo in gloria Right, them, you know, dun, 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 dun. that was the solo, which right. by the way was Jimmy Page, the people don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, when you're eight years old, nine years old, and can do that back in the 60s, I was a freak of nature, you know, what I mean, I could do this stuff. I was always playing with older guys. Now, that's pedestrian nothing by today's standards. Now, now kids, the first thing they learn is how to shred, right. So it's like learning everything backwards. Like, we'll skip from A to Z. I got a guitar. I learned how to play it. Now I can play Steve Vai solo from For the Love of God because I've spent all the hours learning to do that, but I'm eight years old. You know? Yeah. Or everybody not- thinks they're going to be you because they're a young blues player and you're a role model. Wow, there's a guy that did it. But, man, you paid your dues, man. Yeah, you know, I mean, you you know what it's like to play in front of three people. You know what it's like to fucking make no money. You know what it's like to be bagged and fucked with because you were young and white and you were what are you doing, kid? You know, and blah blah blah. And you went past all of it. You didn't listen to anybody. You did it your way. Very impressive. I know how your what your business thing is, and it's amazing how you're the only guy that could do this. You know what I mean? Thank you. Thank you. You know, I my thing was like I, I love playing guitar. I love playing guitar. In front of people. Jeez, do you think? Look what's sitting right behind you. Oh my, my! These are my earthquake stacks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. When that goes down, it was reverb with yeah. reverb, lots of reverb and springs and shit going off. You know? Tons of reverb. You know, uh, tell you know I've been to your house. Your, your house smells like an old Les Paul case. It's you, the greatest thing in the world for all the fans out there that don't know. You live and breathe this shit. I do. You yeah. came over and put my took my fifty nine burst part and like fixed it all up for me and everything. You know, bought me the parts and yeah. you're that guy. You really are that guy, and I love you for it. I know I, some people to give you shit about it because you're such a fanatic collector, but at least you didn't spend your money on blow like some of us idiots did back in the fucking day. You know, I wish I had something to show for it. You know, right. you know there, there, there's, there's a, a an appreciation in your investment. There was none in mine. <laughs> right. Well, you appreciated it at the, at, at the time. Appreciated. I could, if I could change one thing in my life and go back in time, it'd be to avoid all that shit. But you know, live and learn. 
Like you played on. I mean, I'm, I got my shit right. You know, eleven years ago, but you know, shit. You you, you played on fifteen hundred records according to the internet. I, I you know what? It's probably more or less that. I don't know. I never counted them all. You know. Have at the ever, end of my book, at the end of my book, there's a, a discography with a lot of shit in it. You know, yeah. they did they did the research. I don't like. I stopped doing sessions like 25 years ago. As far I mean, I'll do show up and do a guest appearance, but like the old the days of getting calls and not knowing what you were gonna do, who you were gonna play with, what style of music was gonna be, what the song was. No, there was no demos or rehearsals. You had to show up every day with a trick bag full of shit and a lot of ideas. And you better deliver. Or right. you won't get the calls again. Right. Exactly. That's what we did every day. <clears throat> you get no credit for that. It's just that I used too many effects in a fucking video that I did 100 years ago. Yeah. I will <laughs> Have you ever listened to something on the radio and you go, man, that was a, that's a cool guitar part, and then realized it was you and forgot about it? Uh, I, there, uh, no, I never said those words. But what I have heard things that I forgot that I played on, and there's a couple things... You know, when Dan Huff first hit the scene, you know, God bless him, one incredible guitar player and a great record producer, and he's a friend of mine, you know. But when he first hit the scene, there was a little familiarity in his playing right. to mine, and there was a couple of records I go, did I fucking play on that? Now, he doesn't play like that now, but I mean, at the time, he I, he may have been emulating a little bit because of that was the same way I emulated Carlton and Ritt and... Right. great and the guys that can't you know oh i have to have sound kind of like them because i'll fit in better you know not yeah. realizing what they want is you and once i figured that out i could find a little niche a little piece of the acre that's call my own and be right. able to sit next to a guitar player like jay graden or lee rittenauer and when we don't have parts and immediately have to figure out between me and ray parker you know what rave super rhythm guitar i mean one of the best in the world forget the ghostbusters thing yeah that was a money-making machine for him still is but this is one of the funkiest most brilliant guys that comes up with parts on the spot ever and i got to play a lot with ray because i was more of the rock guy and the funk guy and back in the 70s and early 80s that sort of pseudo pop funk rock thing that occurred with david page from silk degrees david foster would come in and they do this there was a certain production yeah. Of that era that I was part of. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, okay. Then we'll get Luke to do the hard rock parts and we'll get Ray to do the funk parts. And and we'd all play together. And it was a yes, the most fun time of my entire life that will never come back. That is over. Well, you know, it seems like, like, you know, producers always have their crew. You know, it's like, you know, like, like Foster had you guys and Quincy Jones. And it's like, yeah, I, mean, I was able to, me and Jeff Picaro were the only two guys that would jump clicks. Like, they had clicks for, like, Quincy had his guys, Foster had his guys, and then there was the Sound Factory guys with the section and all those guys. And for some reason, Jeff and I were able to move from all the, the funk, the rock, the, you know, the more pop things, you know what I mean? And uh, that was what I found so, so satisfying and intriguing and fun was yeah. to be able to fit in with all these legendary guys that I used to read their names on the bad Cooch and Wadi. And then right. there would be, uh, you know, the, the other guys that Quincy would use, you know, <clears throat> and I got to do so much great stuff with him, you know, and I, you know, he took a shot at me. I did all of his stuff for years well, and, uh, you know, a lot of interesting stuff, you know, it was good fun. And a lot of times, like I said, with Q would just go, what do you hear? Right. There was, you know, I'd come up with my own parts on all those records. You know what I mean? We, that's what I got hired for. Human nature was B minor A G. 
Right. And I came up with that part. Yeah. Okay. And then I doubled it direct. So that's why it has that weird sound. Yeah. I mean, so we were always, I know it was the late, great Bruce Swedeen who just passed away. God bless his soul. Yeah. One of the great old school le uh, legendary engineers, you know, from really old school. And me, he, he, I used to come and Q would come in later. Like, he, like I'd get, you know, get up a sound, listen to what we're, and Bruce was pretty much a co-producer, really, you know. In truth, because Q just depended on him and trusted his. And he'd play me something. He goes, yeah, Q. Then Q would come in and go, you got to make this funky for me. It's too pop. I got to get this on R&B radio. You got to give me some fun. For example, Human Nature, which is a Steve Picaro song. And it was basically all of us and Michael singing, written right. by Steve. And Steve didn't have a guitar part for it. When I came up with the part, Quincy and Michael loved it. And Steve hated it. Right. Just hated it. And until it became a hit, and he goes, eh, not so bad after all, you know. And I got, and Quincy gave me a ranging credit on him. You know, I got nominated for a Grammy for it, you know what I mean? But you know, so th that was a trip, you know what I mean? But, you know, there's a lot of things like Stevie Nicks stand back. They want, she wanted like a Billy Jean part, and that was the one Prince played on. Right. You know, stand back and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and they even hired David Williams, rest his soul. Another giant guitar player, funk guitar player, um, who, uh, who played the Billie Jean part right. on Billie Jean, you know, and, and they, they tried everybody, Dean Parks and everything like that. Jimmy Iovine was producing and, and they came in, they gave me that. They said, we're looking for this Billie Jean part. We've even hired all these guys are not giving. I said, let me hear this again. OK, plug me DI, put some uh, compression on it. And let me play something. And, and the first take was what's on the record. That's... that's Ivy and Pox was headed. He goes, that's great. What do you want to eat? And I go, I want that guy's job. <laughs> you know I mean? Well, he's accepting the Grammy for album of the year. It's like, I like to thank all the little people. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, like, gets, like, you know? do you like a live stage or the studio? Or is it you, you love it both equally? You know, man, one's painting on a canvas, which is making records where you can sit back and look at it, change colors, fix. You know, you can live with it. You can go, I want to do that vocal again. I can do better. Right. You make your records like I made my new record. Eight days. It's live solos, and I overdubbed the vocals. Right. I maybe doubled the guitar riff here and there, but I didn't overproduce it or do anything. You know, and Joseph Williams did some background vocals. That was it. You know, and it was a really fun, unique way to do it. So back then, making a record, we'd make six months we'd spend on a record. And all this right. fucking money to get the London Symphony Orchestra and make these grandiose overproduced records that we take shit for. That now, by today's standards, sound way different. You want to talk about slick. I mean, you know, there's not a rough edge anywhere. You slide right off the chair. Right. You know what I mean? But but that's cool. That's what people are listening to. That's what they like now. I come from the, the old school era. But I mean, there's. I think making a record is much like painting and playing live is like Formula One. Right. Falls to the walls. And if you bang into the wall, you got to keep driving. And if right. the whole thing falls apart, you got to go, well, at least I'm not dead. You yeah, <laughs> it'll be tomorrow. Now, the horrible part about that for us is that you can't just leave a bad gig in the building like yeah. you used to be able to and go, oh, God, I'll do better tomorrow, man. Or just, you know, we're all self loathing anyway. But right. I mean, you know, if you had a bad night, hit a stupid note or something like that, now it's on film and people can go look at it. Hold the whole show, they're watching you through the phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I go to see Roger Waters. 
at, at the at Coliseum, right? 80,000 people to see the biggest version of the wall that's ever been done. Now, I worked, I was honored enough to work with Roger on Amused to Death, that record. And, you know, and I know a lot of the same, you know, crew and stuff like that because I know, you know, the legendary David Gilmore, one of my all time favorite guys, is a buddy of mine too. And I met him through Jeff Picard and we stayed pals. And he's still one of my favorite guitar players of all time. And, um, everybody's all of a sudden he comes on the screen it's the most extravagant it's like wow and i'm sitting at the sound desk so i can hear the quad i'm in the most ultimate spot i took my daughter and her right. then boyfriend who's now her husband and we sat there and we watched this and i turned around and i looked i tripped the, the sound mixer and he comes on and it's just amazing and i look up and there's eighty thousand people watching this through their fucking phone Right. I go, you're just like if Jesus came down from the heavens, they wouldn't look and go, oh, my God, it's Jesus. They'd be like, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, guys, man, you know, we rented a beach house, me and my girlfriend to summer just to feel like we went on vacation. And, we, you know, we got a place down in the colony and, you know, really did it nice. You know what I mean? And we're watching these girls that are taking selfies of themselves. In their G-string pants. And then you can see them spending hours fixing the lighting and, you know, taking the stretch marks away or whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? And you go, this is the narcissistic society that we live in. It's a reality show type of society. You I'm, know? Not, I'm not saying yeah. it's bad or good. or I'm just saying it's different than when I was a kid. It's and kids have been robbed of freedom and just being a kid to go out in the street and fall out of a tree and break your arm and, you know, have dirt clawed fights and deal with the humiliation of bullying and learning how to live with it because you're going to get bullied in life no matter what you do for a living. Whether your boss is yelling at you, whether it's your wife, whether it's, you know, you in a position of being in the public eye where people have a fake name and a voice yeah. to shit all over you. Whereas if I went up to them and said, Okay, asshole, let's hear your shit. Let me see your let me see your discography. Let me see what you've done with your life for you to shit on a guy that's you know, a poor fucking humble guy that's just trying to fucking make a living. Right. I don't I have no grandiose thoughts of myself, Joe. You know how I feel. I'm really like so like oh, there's everybody's better than me. And I'm just like I'm just lucky to have a job because I can morph. And I'm funny and people I know how to act in the studio. I'm not afraid of the red light. Some cats I've seen amazing players come in and have to deal with the pressure of all that of what I'm used to and just fall apart like a house of cards and they get to get fired and stuff. And you just go, wow, I can't believe what I just witnessed. I won't name any names because they're famous people. And they just didn't had no clue of what to do in that scenario. Yeah. And we mean, we're not going to rehearse this. You know, we're taking the first take. Right. Yeah. What am I going to play? It's like, I don't know. What do you hear? Right. I'm playing this. I'll give you an idea. It's okay to make a bunch of mistakes on the rundown. We all do. Try and shit out, and it works. Sometimes you get it. It's magical, and you're just glad they were running the tape. Right. Because the worst thing that can happen is if you, and you probably experienced this, where, you know, you're just running something, and you say, let's just take, let's just run it from the top and see how it feels or whatever, and it's magic. And you turn around, and you go, did you get that? And they go, oh, no, you want to record that? Right. You're like fuck! I just played the best <laughs> solo I've ever played, and like that was the greatest drum fill I've ever heard in my life. And it never comes back. Oh, so I, I learned I, early on: 
Never. I've so many good not run the red light on. No matter how bad you play, yeah. keep the red light on. I've I've left so my all my best stuff is left pre the first take because you're because honestly you are you are literally just you are literally just thinking off the top of your head. You know, it's not everybody gets up tight. You know, it's like it's like okay, we're taking this for real. And then, everybody- and then inevitably your brain goes, well, I'm going to play it a little safer because we're making a take. Right. Whereas you're flying by the seat of your pants, you don't care. And sometimes some brilliant shit comes down before you know it too good. Right. You know what I mean? Like, especially in a solo situation. Like, yeah. you know, when you're playing it too and there's riffs and things that got to be played a certain way. But like when you're like when I'm just like not thinking, I'm just practicing at home. Sometimes I play some shit. I go, I gotta remember what that was, man. You know, because that was just yeah. where'd that come from? You know what I mean? And like, why didn't I get that on a record? You know what I mean? How come I'm playing better at home than I play at the studio? You know what I mean? I don't do well like playing in front of people. Like when they come and go, okay, impress me with your fucking playing. I'm not that kind of guy that just sits around and puts up videos of myself online every night. I got to have a purpose to it, you know? Otherwise, I, I feel like I can't compete with you cats. I mean, what do you want me to do? Sit around and just play all this noodling stuff? I, the guy who does it so great is like Greg Koch. Yeah. Because he he's so funny as well. Yeah. But but he always plays something, what the fuck was that? You know what I mean? You know, this guy's an endless plethora of ideas, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of guys like, like him. Oh, not a lot of guys, but there's a few guys out there now that put up these things you just go wow guthrie govan i mean you look at a guy like that who makes it look so effortless yeah and you go how do people get that good you know what i mean there's a lot of young kids now that are coming up that are just staggering i find it really like when i'm in front of thousands of people i play a lot freer than if i'm in the studio and i don't know why am i why am i afraid to embarrass myself in front of four people in the control room versus in front of five thousand people i just don't care well, I have the exact same problem with you, Joe. I feel more comfortable playing in front of 10,000 people than I do one. Right. You know, if I'm in the studio and I'm with, I'm comfortable with the with the engineer and whatever, I mean, I just do my thing. And, and it was so much better for me in my new album. Um, I played all the solos live. I made myself do it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, well, Bonamassa could do this shit. And if all these guys, <laughs> I started out being able to do this shit. I just lost sight of it because... Everybody does records differently now, one guy at a time, or they send you a demo and go, we're going to keep this except overdub all the shit to it, you know? Because right. some of this keyboard part, why would you do that again? It's great, you know? Right. And so it's not like showing up and going, okay, nobody's rehearsed this, nobody's played this, we're going to cut this. Let's run the chart once and make sure it's right and rehearse anything that's a little funny, any figures or anything, and roll the tape. No yeah. click tracks, nothing. And everybody played, and it was so freeing. Like yeah. a long fade out where people are jamming and playing different things, but you can't program. Right. You know, I want a 1972 vibe with 2020 sounds. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's what I went for, you know. Question, I'll send you a copy, you know. Who was your mentor as a producer? Because in, in uh, you won producer of the year. Dave, David Page. David Page. Yes. David Page, Jeff Carl. In the beginning, particularly, but David Page taught me everything there was to know about production, writing, let me play around with engineering when I was 19 years old, because he'd be late and the engineer was cool. And I go, I want to know about this. You know, if Dave's not here, put up the tape and let me fuck around with this. Show me what all these knobs do. Explain to me equalization. You know, now I know 
a complete other language. I can talk to an engineer and go, that's just too much 2K on that guitar. You know right. what I mean? I can hear the frequencies and speak the language, which is yeah. an important thing to do, as you know, as a guitarist trying to get a sound in the studio. You go, it's just a 57 of this amp, man. You know what I mean? I know what this sounds like. Right. So something's wrong here. Or can we can we adjust this somehow? Right. You know, and some engineers go in there and they're already EQing before they even hear the sound source. You got to come out and listen to what's coming out of the amp or what's in front of the drum set or what's going on. It's not just a rote process. I mean, maybe it is now because a lot of people share the same samples and guitar sounds or a lot of similarity in rock music sonically now. Yeah. So there's some amazing virtuoso musicians. There's no question. But sonically, people make records that sound, like, sound the same. It's like when I was a kid, there's a big difference between Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull. Sonically, right. you know what I mean? Or, <clears throat> or Yes and Deep Purple. You know what I mean? All music I dug and still dig. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's still wowed by Richie Blackmore and all the great stuff that he did and all the great you know, Jeff Beck and, you know... Hendrix, Clapton, Page, you know what I mean? Like our heroes. They had yeah. they had their own sound. You know, and I, no, no one sounded remotely the same. As a matter of fact, I, it was like uncool to sound like somebody else. It's like, dude, that's my sound. You right. know what I mean? I mean, people go, I want to sound like Peter Green or I want to sound like Eric Clapton. <clears throat> and they would be inspired by that, but they would find their own sound doing it. Yeah. So that you could play the same licks, but you didn't sound exactly like Eric Clapton. You yeah. know, I know how painstakingly it was learning a lot of his stuff. You know, the solo to Sunshine of Your Love or Crossroads when you were a kid. I mean, that was the, that was the high level shredding of of what people would say today. Yes. Right. Yeah, Clapton was, was God. He was a painted Clapton on the wall. Hendrix, and you know, I mean, like, you know, but then maybe just to a young kid, Hendrix sounds. Well, I don't get the big deal. It's like, no, but you don't understand the significance of that in 1967. Yeah, well, Pat, like, well, Pat Boone, and then and then and Jimmy, then Jimi Hendrix comes out, and you're like, yeah, oh, don't ever forget that Hen Jimi Hendrix over for the Monkees, okay? Right. And you can see how that wouldn't. It's like the Ramones opening for us on our first tour. People were throwing shit at them. Right. Had it been the other way around, and we opened for their audience, they'd thrown shit at us. You know what I mean? It was just bad billing. You know, yeah. a bad match. It's like two people that meet and you go, wow, that's a really nice looking chick or that's a nice looking guy. And on theory, you should be attracted to each other. But then you start talking to each other and go, I can't stand this person. Right. You know what I mean? I don't care how beautiful you are. I just can't hang. We got nothing in common. A couple of things I want to touch on. One being that, uh, you know, the high school band. You yeah. guys were all high school classmates. Paige, yeah. the Picaros and you. Yeah. And and I grew up with Mike Lando and I have been friends since we were 12. My friend John Pierce, who's now playing right. with Toto, but he was with Huey for years, a session guy. I've right. known him since our parents were pregnant on the same block. Right. So that's 63 years. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I have a lot of all the Picaro brothers, everybody in our clique of guys, even guys that weren't in Toto, like Mike Landau, John Pierce, guys like Bruce Gowdy, who went on to, you know, be like more of a metal guy. He was the guy that was so into Zeppelin when we were in school. And great guitar player, great writer. Um, has a band called Unruly Child. But, you know, these are all guys that went to school with us. You know what I mean? The, Tom Scott went to our school. Amazing. You know, Mickey yeah. Dolans went to our school. 
I mean, I'm not at the same time. Some of the Three Dog Night guys I heard went there. So, I mean, all the Picaro brothers and Jeff and Paige had the band before Steve Picaro put together Still Life, which, and then he hired me in Landau. Right. They were going to take either one of us. And we both auditioned for the high school band. But, you know, at the time, there was a lot of Steely Dan going on. We were basically a Steely tribute band because Jeff Picard was the drummer in Steely Dan when we were in high school. That's why we realized the musical level, you had to be that good. Right. So maybe when punk music came out, it was like, what? What the fuck? And then they would compare us to that, which is like comparing garlic to chocolate. You know what right. I mean? It's like both taste good, but in, together it tastes like shit. You know what I mean? So I mean, you know, we can't compare that. It's like comparing, you know, comparing Marvin Gaye to, uh, you know, uh, some Slipknot. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? That's two completely different. I, lo- I love them both. Right. I'm one of those guys that just I love a great pop song. I love a great hard edge song. I love a great guitar fucking shred. You know, I, I like old funky Motown music, you know, Bootsy Collins, you know. I like a lot of different flavors. You know, there's a lot of different flavors. I know a lot of people are like, I only listen to metal. I only listen to country music. I only listen to pop music. I only listen to Mariah Carey. Why? It's like eating vanilla ice cream for your whole life. I mean, because there's some incredible female guitar players. I mean, like, I mean, uh, that are better than a lot of guys. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the thing now, Paul it's like, Bacillo, man, how good is that girl? Oh, she's amazing. I mean, and, and, and uh, who's the, Nita Strauss? I mean, you know, incredible. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the thing about rock music and, and any kind of music is, is it, it inspires people in a different way. You know, I mean, I remember hearing, I remember hearing, uh, you know, because in, in our in our school, like everybody, when when Thriller came out, it was it was like Beat It was the big hit, you know. And being a, at that point, I just started playing guitar, and you're like, oh, there's Eddie. And what a lot of people don't realize is you played the riff. I played and, everything, but and then, but, and then you, and the you brought, and then and then you you recommended Eddie. To no, win. no, no, that's not what happened. Okay, I thought they had already what... recorded Eddie and Michael quad quintupled his lead vocal and comped right. it, right? And played two and four on a drum kit. And when Ed did the solo, he cut the tape, which cut the synthy code, which means right. the master tape wouldn't match up with the slave. So they had done a version before I played on it and Jeff played on it, right? Quincy called me and Jeff. And Umberto Gatica, the engineer, said, go to Sunset Sound and remake this record for me. I'm at Westlake working on some other stuff with Michael. I got to keep this because it's first generation. Vote lead vocal and Eddie Sully goes, I don't want to lose that. Because right. back then, when you'd copy things, you'd lose sonic you know, quality. Yes. So we did it backwards. Jeff went out and listened to the bleed through of Michael's headphones. And two and four... And my and Jeff's time was so good. He just he made his own little click track with a pair of drumsticks, and he went out and played the take. Second right. take was it. Right. And then I overdubbed all the guitar parts. At first, I did a whole fucking with the Marshalls, you know, made it huge. Mm-hmm. And then I did the bass part on it, and I and and then I sent we sent it to Q, and he goes, "It's great, but it's too heavy. I right. got to get this on R and B radio. You got to use one of those small amps and turn down the distortion a little bit." And I go. He goes, it's got to be a crossover to all formats. And I said, okay. Right. So, I, so I got out the deluxe and backed off the gain and gave you what you hear there. Then I went to the studio 
with Michael and Quincy and did the other they just had endlessly going and I go you gotta change this just a little bit you kill yourself by the end of it you know what I mean and all that shit you know we did all this stuff and I hadn't even heard Ed solo yet they didn't let us hear it right they just said Eddie's playing on it, and we got to have it back for whatever reason. They thought we were going to copy it or something like that and put it like we would do that. But, you know, whatever it was, and the record came out piecemeal, made together. What you hear didn't happen in the room at the same time. Well, you know, that's the thing. And, like, you know, like, you know, that's for those who don't realize, like, Simpty was the time code on the tape that married two 24 inch. Right. So you could have a 48 tracks. 46 and tracks or whatever. When we did Africa, when we mixed Africa, which was recorded in 1981, by the way. Right. So, you know, when we mixed that record, it was before there was, you know, aut- automation. So we had like 50 hands all over the desk doing this thing right. like that. And we had four 24 tracks in sync. There right. were guys in lab coats going there because it would fall apart and wouldn't sync up. Right. So, like, I mean, we pushed this stuff to the limit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just to see if we could. Because we right. had the time and we had the dough. And none of us had families at the time, so we were in the studio all day long. I don't want to be in the studio 24 hours a day. I want to go in the morning. For my my best work happens between 10 and 2. Right. You know what I mean? That's when I'm, I wake up early in the morning. I get all my business done. I practiced. I practiced this morning before I talked to you. So I can fuck off in the afternoon and be dad. Right. The, one, the, the only advantage of this horrible year that we've had is me being able to connect with my kids and cultivate my relationship my new relationship with my girlfriend and be sleep in my own bed and catch up with 40 some odd years of rest but yeah, now kinda, i'm rested let's get the fuck on the road again and play yeah i i i went to my closet in the bedroom the other day and i was like i was like there's my bag still packed from the last tour i always and i'm like going it's been a long time since a bag like that has sat that long without moving you Dude, know I used, I used to never run back because I would go from Toto to Ringo, Toto to Ringo, 300 some odd days a year. Probably like you, but I would just would do different stuff, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, my bags have got, they're in the garage collecting dust. Yeah, right. You know, like so, me, like me collecting dust in my own house. It, it must be surreal, though. I mean, because I, I read, the, like, you know, your first guitar, you bought it, you bought a K guitar. I and, have it in my living room right now. And 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 a copy of Meet the yeah, that's my parent. Yeah, I got that in nineteen sixty four. So it must be surreal that that your gig every uh, you know night after night there he is, the one he's, the al- only. he's also become a very dear friend of mine. Yeah, and after almost nine years, yeah, Ringo, man, there's only one, and I've had a chance to work with Paul several times. George was a friend of mine, right. and we played together. I got some great photos, and we spent some amazing times together. And he was just so beautiful to me. Played me free as a bird before anybody heard it. The, like the new Beatles track. I mean, right. he knew what a fan I was. And I, you know, with, with, with poor George, I loved your solo on Tax Makers. No, that was Paul. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, you know, I knew all the right shit because I know the right. difference, you know? Right. And, and I, you know, I just got the sound you got on something, man. What that was like room and like, you know, I was able to ask him all these goofy questions. You know, I got to ask George Martin and Jeff Emmerich questions about how did you get that sound on the revolution? He tells me, well, that was a fuzz done. That was two. We maxed out two, two, you know, these are the back in the days when the desks were tube. Yeah. 
Right. So he goes, we, 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 Mickey, what's the term when you put two things together? You know what I mean? Daisy chain them or something. Yeah, right. Or whatever. Daisy chain two, two, and overloaded till it, like the tubes were on fire. Right. And double, and like, it was, it's like triple gaining something. You know what I mean? Right. And that's how that revolution fuzzed out. They had to do it after midnight when the guys in the lab coats weren't around misusing the gear. Because right. they saw that as misusing the gear. And half the shit that we loved from the Beatles was misusing the gear. Yeah. That's what Jeff Emmerich brought to the party. Oh, you want that? And Jeff Emmerich was the guy that had to figure out, well, I got to take what he said and make that a reality. Right. So he's, he's an unsung hero to the Beatles sound and all that. Just like George Martin came up with so many of the great harmonies. Because he's a school musician. And we go, I got this one. Right. You know, I saw the, the the original score for yesterday, the string chart, the quartet with the mistakes crossed out from George Martin and all this stuff. It's like I'm sitting there looking at this going, holy fuck, there it is. You know, yeah. what I mean, I, and I can read music. So I'm looking at it. I'm going, that's like in his hand and, you know, where he crossed shit out and fixed it. And, you know, it's like, it was just astounding. To know that, that all that shit was done on, like, you know, two tracks, three tracks, four tracks, eight tracks later at uh, Abbey Road, you know. It wasn't like what we got. There was no click tracks. There was edits. There was a lot of editing. Yeah. But Ringo, in order to edit, you have to have really good time. Yeah. And Ringo has some of the best time there is. And ever, anybody that gives, I mean, how many people can play drums and you just play the drum track and you know what tune it is? Right. He was that creative of a drummer. No, he's not Vinny. He's not Neil Peart. He's not fucking, you know, uh, you know, Dave Weckl or any, you know, Simon Phillips or something. You know what I mean? He plays the song. But he nobody grooves like it. Yeah. And he's really on the backside of the beat. And I love that because that's how Jeff was. Jeff loved Ringo, you know. Who didn't love Ringo? I mean, it's not so silly now. You know, I mean, come on. You know, it was funny, it was funny when I was at Abbey Road. You know, like they, they were, they were, you know, happy to give you the tour. They're happy to show you like some of the mics that John Lennon and Paul McCartney sang on, George sang on, and they have the EMI console that you know the the they were the, the Beatles would record through and stuff like that, and Dark Side of the Moon and all that. And they're like, "Isn't this amazing?" I go, I go, look at this console. It's, I go, absolutely amazing. I go, the one thing this console will not do is write the songs. You could have all the gear, but it's the tunes that that. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like giving a kid a sunburst. It's not going to fucking make him sound like, you know, I mean, yeah, great gear. It's really helpful, but it's a famous story Larry Carlton told me. Somebody said he was playing and somebody walked up and said, man, that guitar sounds great, man. And Larry goes, yeah. And he goes and puts the guitar in the stand and he goes, how about now? How about now? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Like it's not doing anything unless somebody plays it. You know what I mean? Exactly. How how big of a shock was it to to all of a sudden have Africa come back around and be covered by, by by Weezer and become like the biggest hit of? Yeah, was it, like, he, he, he won't talk to me, man. I try to talk to Rivers and just say, "Hey, isn't it funny, man? Isn't it cool?" He refuses to talk to me. I don't know what his stories. I mean, I work with some of the most famous people that ever were, and this right. guy won't talk to me. That's like, awesome. Sorry, man. I made you a lot of money. I'm sorry, dude. You right. know, you're making fun of us and it backfired on you, huh? And, and, and it's like, you know, that nobody's more surprised than us. 
it's the it's the million versions, the chicken clucking, you know. Right. Just I mean, shit's funny. I mean, there's no question about it. People making fun of us on TV. I don't care. Yacht rock. What the fuck is yacht rock? I mean, you know, they they put terminology on basically my entire session career. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, where's my yacht? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, you know, okay, you got why everybody has to bag everybody. Why can't I just be a musician that plays different shit? But you know, what, the thing like, is what's, you, why do you have to be a specific kind of blues player? Why do you, why can't you? What is Eric Clapton not a blues player because he made Sunshine of Your Love? It's you can do anything. This the the rule is there is no rules. And I've always I've always is tried a rock or a blues thing. You know, yeah, you know exactly. Well, they overthink it sometimes. It's like it's like. But you know, the truth is, is when that drum beat starts at a Toto concert, ten thousand people erupt. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, hit, hits are a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing to get one and a curse to play one for the rest of your life. Right. You know, thank God when you know, I don't go over to somebody's house and they go, come on, play us Africa. I go like, you know, if you're a plumber, go, come over and do the plumbing in my house. Right. For free. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, do I have a clown suit on 24 hours a day? No. Right. You know, I'm a regular guy like everybody else. You know, I'm a... Luckiest job, most grateful for it. I thank God every day for my blessings. Every day, because there's a million guys better than me. But, you know, I was, okay, I was at the right place at the right time. And that, there's this argument. Yeah, it's luck to get in the door. But it's not luck to get called back and make an entire career of it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm much better player now than I was. Even better since my accident. And I can't really be show off if anything it's made me go back to being more economical playing wise which has helped my play right. as opposed to hurt it you know i still got a little gas left but i can't go on and on and on because it hurts I, plus i don't do it i don't do it better than the kids today so why bother i I'm, think I'm, I'm closer to fucking dave gilmore than i am to any of the the young wonder kids of today you know right all right i'm going to name an artist and just give me a sentence about the artist that you work with or sure. share. An old dear friend. My dad was the assistant director on the only movie that Sonny directed for her before Paige and Jeff joined Sonny and Shears Band when they were 17 years old. Um, and wow. so that we belong in it. I produced some stuff for her. I played on a lot of her hits starting in the 70s and all the way in the I played on Turn Back Time and all that stuff. <clears throat> and um, she's a really classy, wonderful, soulful, funny woman. She treated me great. I fell in love with her when I was a kid. My dad was working on her father around like a puppy dog. Right. They were really nice people to me. She is great for a reason, because she's Cher. I mean, Cher. very few people can pull that off. And she's the real thing, man. I have deep respect for her. And she did me a solid by singing on the Spinal Tap record that I uh, co that I produced, actually. And... Uh, uh, like like the wind, I did like four tracks on the album. She sang on one of them. She's a great sport, and uh, she, there's there's a lot of history between us, man. She's a great chick, man. Randy Newman, brilliant and funny, dry as a bone. When we did the uh, you know the uh, Trouble in Paradise album with I Love L A and all that stuff, that's us screaming. I love we love it, and I played it all over the. We're in the video even. He sang. He brought his his charts were a little more detailed mm -hmm. because he's very schooled. Right. I mean, there was still room for us to create and do all kinds of fun stuff, but you know, 
he had specific things and specific voicings he wanted and they were written out and he would sit and sing the lead vocal and sing the song for you and it was like wow man this cat's got his own thing man he's a really brilliant man and funny as fuck right (laughs) mike donald Michael goes all the way back to high school. He was in Steely Dan with Jeff Picaro when we were in high school. Wow. And and uh, we, at one point, was asked to be the singer in Toto, but he had just joined the Doobie Brothers. Wow. And we, and we worked on his first song, about That's Me on I Keep Forgetting, another B minor AG song, E minor A. You know what I mean? No, that wasn't on there. I just came up with that. That was the second take. Kept on the record. And he's always worked on our stuff. And he, I think he has a yacht, too, I think. I mean, I'm not really sure, but we toured together. I think the world of Michael McDonald, man. He's fucking pro. Heart, I worked on stuff that he produced outside of it. And we've been friends for 40-some-odd years, and I adore him. Him and his wife, Amy, are awesome. Michael Jackson. Interesting cat. Don't know him as a friend. Um, friendly in the studio, worked together. My age, thought I was a little bit crazy because of my sense of humor, <laughs> which I don't edit for anyone, including right. my children. Um, and Q was used to me, and he was fun. I mean, he was cool. I mean, I'm, there was the Michael from the Thriller era, what he looked like, and then I worked on History five years later, and it was like, whoa, dude, what happened? Right. I didn't. It was it was kind of scary to me, honest with you. Right. And uh, I felt for the cat that 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 he felt that he needed to do that to himself because he was a handsome young cat. I guess it just bothered him. I guess too much time in front of a mirror worrying about it. I guess I don't know. I I don't know enough about Michael's personal life to comment on it to be truthful. But he was very nice to me and a complete pro. And when it was working for him his body language would change and he would start dancing around. Then you knew you were on to the right feel and the right, what he was, what he wanted. He would make demos using his voice as all the instruments. Wow. And, you know, and, but, but, you know, he knew what he wanted, but at the same time, he really welcomed input. Yeah. Like if you did something, he goes, yeah, I like, I like that part, you know, let's work on that. I feel it just like a little differently or whatever, you know, and you had to be able to like, okay, take that input and, Give him what he wanted. Earth, wind, like, and fire. That was again. That was fun. I did. That was fast. I did that song back on the road, like it was just Maurice White, um, George Massenberg, famous engineer, designer, and uh, and me. And he go, And it was an Al McKay song. And Al's an old friend of mine since I was a kid. Right. And one of the greatest funkiest rhythm guitar players ever. And I guess he had done a solo that they didn't like or they weren't going to use. And I went in and did my shit in like one take. Right. And I doubled one little line that was very reminiscent of Saturday in the Park. Uh, and they kept it and became a deal, you know. But Al was pissed at me for years for playing on his song. Because people would go up to Al and go, hey, man, great solo on your tunes. And you'd be like, oh, that was Luke there, man. All right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, it's it, it's it's funny when that happens. You know. Before we wrap up, everyone's got a strange session. I'll tell you which the strangest session I've done in my and I I'm by no well, means. I got you beat. I got I'll, everybody I'll, beat. Go ahead. I'll just I'll I'll lay the I'll lay the bar out. Yeah. Um, 
I played on a Bozo the Clown record called Blues for Bozo. Okay. <laughs> Larry, I'm not the winner after all. <laughs> Larry Harmon was, was, was the Bozo the Clown that he got kicked out of the Clown Hall of Fame because he ended up stealing the act of Bozo from somebody else. But he got kicked out retroactively. He was trying to make a comeback in his later years. And he put out this children's record. I didn't know there was a Bozo before Bozo. There was a pre-Bozo and then there was the famous Bozo and and he showed up to Jerry's Deli in a white Rolls Royce. It's everything you wanted out of old entertainment Beverly Hills. Right, and I put right. on a track called Blues for Bozo. And when iTunes came out and we were we couldn't get our records on iTunes, it was the only fucking song. If you look <laughs> at the bottom of the house, it was Blues for Bozo with Bozo the Clown. That's my strangest session ever. Now you now you can beat it. I can beat that. Yeah. Or at least come up to that level. Right. Um you know, back in the days, you know, um, we get a call for a session and it would be like a contractor right. who wouldn't tell you anything. I need you at Sunset Sound 12 to 6, Monday through Friday, double scale, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, sure, I'm not doing nothing. Sounds fun. I'll show up. It was Richard Simmons. <laughs> okay. Who was making a, a, you know, like a dance record to work out to. Right. And he was every bit Richard Simmons in the studios. He was on TV. Now, at the time, I had, I was one of the first guys to have a... I took a lot of shit for this. Having a tech in the studio for sessions. Change my strings, run my errands, do my shit, make sure everything was cool. Kept me, you know, so I could relax a little bit because I was working so much. And, I, you know, I took, oh, look at this, got a tech. Oh, well, you know, it's like... I just said, hey, listen, man, I'm working. You know, I need help. But he was—he had his tooth pulled, and he was on Vikes and fucking. But he was like lying on the couch, like, oh fuck, Richard Simmons. And this guy looks like he'd done hard time. Okay, right. this was not like a beautiful tech. This guy was like weathered, okay, right. and a lot of pain. And you know, he could probably crush a car with the hand, one of his hands, right? Well, Richard came up to him, he's half nodded out, kissed him on the cheek, right. Right. where he snapped. You know what I mean? Right. I'm realizing, what the fuck am I doing this for? This is one of the last sessions I, I, I ever took that I didn't know who it was. Right. And I said, I'll be right back, man. And I went to my car and left. <laughs> now, enter. Then you edit to two weeks later, I come back and I'm doing a record for Greg Matheson, you know, in the back room, cutting tracks with Jeff and cats. And, right. And, uh, they're still working on their record. And right. I, as I walked, well, I got to be careful what I say. This is going to get me in a lot of trouble, man. Uh, let's just say there used to be an intercom at Sunset Sound, which they kept changing all the time because I would find out what the number was. And of course. Right. Pontificate to the masses in the studio my feelings at the time. Right. You can only really imagine what they are. Right. And they'd always be changed. They'd go, oh, look at this code. Change the code again. I'd find out from the second. I'd humiliate them into giving me the information, right? And, you know, I, and, and I, but, you know, Van Halen would be in the Studio 3, Prince in Studio, or, or Van Halen was in Studio 1. We were in 2, and Prince or somebody was in Studio 3. But the intercoms were everywhere. Right. So you could hear anything anytime. We used to go into the, the uh, people would be mixing a record, and we used to go into the echo chamber. And you know, the, the echo chamber is just yeah. a reverby room with a microphone and a speaker, right? You know what I mean? And we'd like go up and snort blow next to the speaker. 
<laughs> like next to the microphone that's in the echo chamber while they're mixing a record. So let me <laughs> <laughs> stupid shit. It's things we did in the 70s and early 80s. You know what I mean, guys? I did all the stupid shit. I don't recommend this to anybody. At the time, everybody did it. It was everywhere. So we just have fun with it. You know what I mean? Before it got ugly and horrible and addictive and killed people and ruined their lives and shit like that. It was a time when it was perfect. Well, it was everywhere. Yeah, it was everywhere. Right, every 10 in the morning, you walk in the studio, there's a pile of it everywhere. I'd be like, right. I don't want to do this shit right now. Right. You know, I got to work all day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, the myth that we were all fucked up all the time and in a band and doing every session in town is a little bit blown out of proportion. You, you know what I mean? Work that. How, that how would I do all this if I was a mess? Why would people call me back more than once if I showed up like that? You know what I mean? Now, there was a point where you could show up and do a bump and do the session and, and not get out of control, but we weren't sitting around partying. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was not, I mean, you had to be have your full faculties to read the charts and change parts on a, on a dime and do all this other shit, you know? So, I mean, you know, did we hang out afterwards and make assholes out of ourselves? Absolutely. Do I regret it? Absolutely. There was some fun in it, but I don't recommend it. No. I wish I could skip it because I spent a lot of money and wasted days recovering from burning myself. I even missed a few sessions by just being up all night and calling in sick like an idiot, you know, fucking up my dream gig. So, I mean, I'm not glamorizing the use of drugs by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, avoid it. Yeah. I mean, smoke a little weed, have a taste, don't get drunk and drive, and, you know, whatever you want to do. But, you know, beyond that, I'd be careful. Steve Lukather, I love you. You're you're gonna leave you're, me with my drug advice. That's great. One of my favorite people <laughs> on the planet. I love you, Joe Bonamassa. You're one of my favorite guitar players of all time. And you know I adore you as a person. And we gotta hang out. And thank you again for always sticking up for me. Because some yeah, people don't. You know, they judge me on face value and you actually know me. And the fact that you, somebody as respected as you, um, would stick up for me meant the world to me. Thank you for that oh. being my friend and all that shit. Listen, you know, everybody gets caught up in saying something that gets taken out of context. And, and yeah, I'm and, not putting down the guitar. I mean, like I said, there's like a hundred thousand people pissing on me right now over oh. some goofball remark I made. I'm like, guys, I apologize. I'm like, what do I know about this? You know, I'm an old fart. Okay, laugh all you want. Look at me. At least I still got my fucking hair, you know? Right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you don't Mr. need your hair. You got plenty of hair to play like you. Fuck uh, you. I got enough. I got enough oh, to get through. You're fine. Another ten years and I'm uh, you're fine. But uh, thanks for being here, ladies Thank and gentlemen. The great Steve Lukather. Oh, stop. You're the great Joe Bonamassa. This has been another episode of Live at Nerdville. Well, you call the right guy. I'm, I was a nerd my whole fucking life. <laughs>